Hey, my name is Larry Ife. This is episode 198. Um, I interviewed a guy named Michael Schumann. We met on LinkedIn. We started talking about uh, how communities can help themselves by creating local stock markets. We got into that kind of stuff because he knows, you know, he has a couple of degrees in finance, economics, things like that. So we just decided, to, I said, hey, you want to do an episode? He said, yeah. I said, cool. So we did one. And that's what you're about to check out now. All right. All right, this is Larry Ife, uh, my podcast, White Confused, Black and Christian, the podcast. I got a guest named Michael Schumann. I met him on LinkedIn, and we've been talking about a bunch of stuff. Um, he's the man. He knows about finance, economics, stocks, a bunch of stuff that I know zero about. And I just want to get a hold of him so he can share a bunch of stuff. Um, I guess just have like a regular conversation and, and see what the stock market and and. Uh, like the local stock market exchange, things like that, that we've talked about before. I just want to be able to chop it up and talk about it uh, in the open. So I'm just going to let the professionals handle what they do and just say, go ahead, Mike. Well, that's great. And and it's clear from our exchanges up to this point that you know quite a bit. And I, I, I think most people in your audience probably know enough about the finance system to know that something's not working very well with it. And we've got to come up with something better. Um, and, and one of the things that I think could be better is if we try to localize our money more. Uh, and localize your money can mean a bunch of different things. Uh, it means staying out of global credit cards and staying into community banks and credit unions. Uh, it means focusing our loans that we give to friends and family um, and other businesses in our community that uh, we think we, uh, you know, are, are promising for growing our community rather than sending our money to Wall Street. It means thinking about um, how to uh, maybe not put money into a 401k or an IRA, if that money is going to leave your community and instead think of all the ways that the money could stay in your community. And there is, I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say, and we'll just open it up for discussion. I mean, I, I think there's kind of a revolution happening in democratizing capital. Uh, and one piece of evidence of this is uh, a that starting five years ago, investment crowdfunding just became legalized. Uh, so investment crowdfunding allows grassroots people to put small amounts of money into small companies in an easy and inexpensive way. And as of, you know, as of about a month ago, uh, investment crowdfunding has put about 1.3 billion dollars into 6,000 small businesses, um, and the most successful entrepreneurs have been women and people of color because they have been those most excluded by the existing capital system. Right. Yeah, and that's I'm gonna hit on that point too in a minute because, uh, but but first, I want to ask you so. It, about the 401k these people have let's say you have a school and they have a fund that has like like a couple billion dollars and they take and they put it in the stock market 
So how can they take a, let's say a billion dollars and instead of doing a stock market, put it into a local fund? Is that, a, is that gonna be easy transfer or easy shift to put that kind of money? Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. Well, let's put it this way. It is easy for an individual to move his or her own savings into something you can then reinvest locally. For an institution to do it, um, I think it's going to take a little bit of work. I mean, there is some experience that I'm aware of, of like the um, public employees unions of, uh, not not union, yeah, well, pub public employee um, establishments have funds in Michigan and California and New York, and some of those funds have found their way into, you know, in-state projects, in-state things, but there, it's been very, very small. And so we need to, I think, expand the options um, for grassroots capital, and then the biggest institutions might start paying attention to it. How do you propose to do that? You think like if you have meetings like, uh, because I'm thinking about how I would do it I like, let's say I was a teacher. I knew nothing about investing, but I, I have, I put my money into a, uh, a fund that goes to a, you know, the big investors. Now, somebody comes to me like you and says, hey, how about you invest in a local stock market? How would, how would we reach those, kind of, how would we reach those people? I mean, how would that, what does that look like? Right. So, so I think we, you know, one way of answering the question is to think about the relationship of different parts of the capital market. So let me just talk about four different working parts of this. And this is true of, you know, big business and small business, but, you know, you start with a company needs capital, they'll sell stock or they'll sell debt notes and investors put money in. So that's the issuance of a security. A security is any agreement that has a rate of return associated with it. The next step is that investors often want to resell the stock or resell the debt note because they need the money. Um, so that's where an, a stock exchange might come in. The third thing is um, it's hard for individual investors to choose you know, 10 companies that they're invested in. So that's why, you know, most of us put our money into funds, one kind of fund or another. Uh, and presumably a fund has a manager that uh, with, with a little bit of discernment chooses good stocks, good bonds, and then you put your money in there. And one of the advantages of a fund is that you have a more diversified portfolio. So if one, one business does bad and the others do good, you're still sort of covered. And, and the other advantage is um, that they're a little bit more what we call liquid. So if you need to pull money out of the fund, you can do it usually more easily than you could out of a, a single business. Um, and then the last thing is, what we were just talking about, which is institutional investment. So institutional investment is everything from, you know, big pension funds, uh, foundation investing, states investing, 
surplus money. And here's the thing. Right now in the local investment universe, the only thing we are kind of growing in any volume is the issuance of securities. There are no stock markets, local stock markets. There are about 20 local investment funds around the country. Uh, but given, you know, we're a country of uh, 35,000 cities, that's not, that's not very much. And, and then uh, institutional investing, very, very hard. So once we can provide a bunch of funds, institutions may begin to invest in them. And I think the way you'll have a bunch of funds is that you'll have a bunch of stock markets, uh, local stock markets that actually give some valuation to the securities, because otherwise the funds don't know how valuable what they're purchasing is. And then, you know, so, so I think it's going to be a process, but it's a process that is beginning to happen. And people, I think as long as people are committed to pulling money out of Wall Street, we will figure out ways to make it happen. Well, you have a, uh, what about a newsletter or a paper? You have a paper or uh... yeah, yeah, I have a, I have a, uh, every two weeks I send around a newsletter with links about what's happening in this local investment field. It's called the Main Street Journal. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, easy, easy, it's free. Um, and it's just kind of a service that I'm doing to, uh, as a way of building the ecosystem. But, but listen, if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, I couldn't even say to you that there was an expansion in the issuance of local securities. Like that's new. The investment crowdfunding is new. Okay, so, so that's a big difference from 10 years ago. And there were maybe five local investment funds, so we have 20 now. Okay, that's, that's an advancement. Um, where you live, Larry, in the state of Michigan, the state legislature is debating now whether to create an income tax credit of 50% for local investment. So the idea is that for every dollar you put into a local business, you would get 50 cents off of your state taxes. Uh, and that would be a tremendous incentive to begin to change a bunch of things in the state. That, that's, so Michigan is that far ahead right now, huh? Michigan has, weirdly, Michigan has been ahead at almost every stage. Um, Michigan passed a bill 10 years ago indicating an interest in local <laughs> stock markets, but it was really, it was more symbolic and didn't really do much. Michigan was one of the first states to pass a state-oriented uh, crowdfunding law called the MILE, uh, the MILE law, Michigan Investment Law. Is that what it is? I forget, I forget what all the additionals stand for. Um, so yeah, I think you're, you're living in a pretty good location where, where there is some innovation. Um, also, you know, like the only, uh, so an RIA is a um, registered investment advisor and Michigan is the only state that has a registered investment advisor who's organizing 
other investment advisors to invest locally. Um, her name is um, Angela Barbash, and he, she's in Ypsilanti. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of things to build on, exciting things going on in Michigan. Well, as, yeah, because we have, we have, we figure we have Amway. Have you heard of Amway or not? Oh, yeah. We've got Amway, we've got uh, Steelcase, Herman Miller, um, uh, some other companies. Some other, we have some big companies for being, I'm in Grand Rapids. So Western Michigan has a lot, a lot of, a couple, well, a couple billionaires, a lot of money for being a small town. So I can see that being uh, a good place for business. Well, and, you know, and, and the question is, I, I mean, I know some of these billionaires have been interested in small business and some of them not. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we can get the right ones to uh, to team up with us on this, I think, you know, there could be some possibilities. But it's here. I mean, here's here's the other thing that I would say. So th this is an area where Michigan hasn't been so great which is on economic development. That Michigan, like most states in the country, has been addicted uh, to attracting outside companies as a way of yeah. uh, building up the communities. And they spend you know, millions of dollars to outside business. And what they don't realize, besides the fact that it never works, is that um, every dollar you give away to an, another company puts your businesses, your local businesses at a competitive disadvantage. And your local businesses are going to generate so much more economic vitality than the outside businesses. You should never have been dancing with these untrustworthy strangers in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what's happened here. We've got, well, in Grand Rapids, they have, like I said, DeVos and Venando, they own the, the Amway boys and they're buying hospitals and colleges and everything has their name on it. So they're, so they're, they have the money and the potential, but like I said, they're buying a city. Um, one, of the, one of them comes from a city called Ada. He's interested in buying Ada and making his own little personal town. So he's not into too much, uh, not into too much spreading around like that with local people. Um, I thought the days of, you know, like, a one company town like a one company mining town were, were over but you're no. telling me this guy is bringing it back yeah so so i did a, i did a podcast about it it was called um i live in devos michigan um i said that because if you go down they have a medical mile there was a hospital called butterworth now it's called the devos hospital that's the one guy's last name across the street the hospital is called the venando Institute for Cancer, that's the other guy's name. Then you got the DeVos Children's Hospital and you got Grand Valley State, uh, the DeVos chapter, and then you've got DeVos Arena, no, Van Andel Arena, and then you got DeVos Convention Center. I mean, it's just, it's just bananas. It's, it's, They're everywhere. Yeah. It's, it, wow. So this is the thing, I, I mean, I, well, well, I, think that sometimes it's useful if you if one can find a simpatico millionaire or billionaire to support community building uh it's great we should do it but i never rely on that i, I don't you know i don't trust these folks for a second and 
I really think this is one of the reasons why I like, you know, grassroots capital. Um, and I'll, suppose, you know, let's look at it from the standpoint of a city or a county or a state. Um, I'll give you a kind of cool example, which is um, there are maybe 60 green banks in the United States. Uh, these are public institutions, financial bodies that gather up money, usually public money, sometimes foundation money, and they use that money to promote solarization of homes and stormwater management or maybe clean drinking water. Um, there's only one example that I know of, which is the state of Connecticut, which issued municipal bonds uh, that could be bought in small denominations and allowed grassroots investors to buy those bonds. And it was a $25 million bond issue to support solarizing homes in Connecticut. It was so popular, it, they sold out in 48 hours. So I think that, you know, the towns that we live in, we should figure out what is our priority for economic development, not, not what are the billionaire priorities, and think about how we can raise the capital for that, you know, through local municipal bonds. So municipal bonds, do you have to have a the SEC clearance still for the, the, the smaller people to invest? So, yes. Um, and it's a different process than, um, nor, than the securities laws we've been talking about um, because it's a whole different marketplace. But if, you know, Connecticut has shown that it can be done, um, you know, there is some expense in making it um, purchasable by, by grassroots people, but I think it's worthwhile. And, and this is where the state actually could be helpful. Like if the state sets up a framework for issuing small scale bonds, they could cover the expenses and then cities could take advantage of it. Well, I'm a, I, I'll tell you this. Well, well, hold on, let me see something here. Before I say that thing, well, I'll just say it. This stuff is kind of, tell you too, it's kind of fucking boring. It's actually boring. It, 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 but the average investor is gonna be like crowdfund, uh, IRA, uh, municipal, no idea, no clue. They just want their money to go somewhere and they, they don't want to worry about it anymore. And that's the only problem I see. I'm into it because I have, you know, my wife and I have plans to invest in real estate, but the average person that we need for the grassroots is really doesn't care about it. And they don't, and, and it's hard to kind of make them care or, or, or to get them interested in it. Like you said, I think it's going to take somebody to actually do it first. Um, maybe a, a partner with one of these, like in Grand Rapids, maybe partner with one of these billionaires, have them partner with a, a neighborhood association and those two work together maybe and do something. Um, but right now, all we have, all we've seen is like those two families, the Boston Fernando, the Amway boys, uh, they'll come into the hood and they'll buy all the property behind, you know, a lot of sneaky stuff behind closed doors. They'll buy all the property and then they'll start tearing it down a little bit at a time and then gentrifying it, like it's called gentrification. They'll start having these, you know, little coffee shops where the coffee's, you know, $12 a cup now and, and, and the condos and the high rise and everybody loves it because they're saying that's, 
that's all they've seen. They have nothing to compare it to. Um, is there right. any, is there anything you were talking about a local stock market? You were talking about setting one up. Is there any example? Let's say we want to talk to a, a group of teachers or something like that, or a group of anybody. Is there any example? What would be the best example? That we well, you know, I mean, so there's there's lots of examples of communities that have created interesting things that invite grassroots investment. Um, and well, let me let, let's look at a couple examples. So um, in Portland, uh, Oregon, uh, there is a big nonprofit there called Mercy Corps. And Mercy Corps worked with a, um, a, a, a low income community and helped them buy a shopping center. And basically, people in the neighborhood um, can, you know, with, with, with not a lot of money, I mean, we're talking $50, $100, can buy little stakes in the shopping center. And so by, by getting the neighborhood to buy the shopping center, they stabilized the rent for about 150 businesses that were inside the shopping center. And they gave people, you know, the opportunity to like have a piece of the action. The neighborhood was really excited about that. Um, how they reach, you know how they, do you have any idea how they reached them? How did they, how they, to get people interested in actually learn what a stock issuance is or whatever case may be? Yeah, it's, I mean, some of it was education, but basically there were organizations, community-based organizations there that were, you know, in favor of the project. And I think that's pretty key. And that, you know, that, that, these these programs need to either be initiated by or have you know strong support by uh, neighborhood groups uh, before they get started, or otherwise it is going to be just someone gentrifying the neighborhood and have yeah. unfortunate results. Um, give you another example in Los Angeles. Uh, there's a company that's building affordable housing called Nico. And they've made it possible for residents in Los Angeles to, to help, you know, invest in that property uh, and make affordable housing more available. Um, there's another company called Landed that's making it possible for people to invest in down payments of sort of, you know, uh, lower income people who want to uh, become homeowner, homeowners. Um, and so, and it's really, it's a very, very good deal for the homeowner. You know, someone comes in, say, buys half of your, um, half, half of the uh, deposit you're putting down. And, you know, if your property does well, when you sell it again, you have to give, you know, a little piece of the appreciation uh, to the person who helped you, but not, not all of it, not the majority of it. Um, and if your property loses value, then the investor loses value as well. So, but, but I think these are all ways of promoting affordable housing. Um, and another way, another thing that's, I think, really cool is you look at um, the biggest land trust, community land trust in the country in uh, Burlington, Vermont. So this was started by Mayor Bernie Sanders. 150 years ago. Um, and, you know, Bernie gave to a nonprofit 
$100,000 through a municipal bond to start buying up um, property, you know, and, and basically the land trust then had a critical mass of properties. And the way the land trust works is the land trust, the nonprofit, holds the properties in perpetuity. And then they give homeowners who want to come in 100-year leases. So by you know, basically saying to the homeowner, you don't have to buy the land, just the house, you bring down the cost of housing. Uh, at the same time, people become effectively homeowners. Um, and and because it's controlled by the nonprofit, it stays affordable forever. So now there's 2,000 families in um, in Burlington, Vermont, that are that have homes, affordable housing within the land trust. I mean, that, so this is 40 years later, but it shows what can be done. I think you know if you get started in the right way on a problem like this. Oh man, yeah. Okay, so I see what you're talking about. Um, what if, well, while we were talking, I thought about some earlier too. What if, like, an initiative would be, you know, I come with you, I see the bunch of just riffraff to you, just thoughts in my head. I have no idea if they're economically stable or not, or can be or possible. Um, but what if, like, okay, so people are into buying houses or flipping houses right now. They're really into right. houses. What if there was a way to say, okay, um, when you, like, with the land bank, when you buy a house in a land bank, a certain percentage of that money automatically goes into the issuance of a local trust fund somehow. Because I think that people, if you're not aware of it, let's just say you all you know is, okay, I bought a house in the land bank, and now I got some kind of ownership of some fund. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, as long as they know that every year they get distribution or they're, they're a part owner in something general, uh, I think that instead of trying to teach somebody I would not go to a class and learn about issuances and stuff like yeah. that. If somebody told me, look, you just buy a house, what comes with a house, just like a, 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 like a, like a Happy Meal. You buy a Happy Meal, you get a toy with it. You get a burger fries, a toy comes with it. <laughs> you just give the house and, you know, everybody's flipping houses. The average Joe is flipping houses. You flip a house and this comes with it. You get like 5% or, or whatever the case may be. I know those types of things is easy to do or, or hard because you talk about the SEC and a lot of filings and a lot of things like that that have to be done first. Do you have to have a local stock market in place or or does a local trust fund have to be registered with the SEC or something like that? I mean, people so, have ideas probably, but I'm sure yeah. you can't just, just... Yeah, no, I think, I so, I mean, there's, there's some interesting possibilities there. So, you know, if you have a company uh, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit or publicly owned, and it holds a lot of property and it buys and sells properties, that is not considered an investment fund. That's an exempt animal from the Investment Company Act. So it's actually not a bad way of, of creating a vehicle that is kind of like an investment company, but really, but is but doesn't have to deal with all the SEC laws around it. Um, and, and so, yeah, land trusts are kind of like that. I would, you know, if you go to Canada, um, in um, Alberta, the province of Alberta, they allow co-ops to be investment companies. So you have these community co-ops 
you know, and they, they, you know, buy property and uh, help, help purchase businesses to keep them alive. And then members of the co-op can invest in the co-op uh, to help capitalize all of this. Can't do that in the United States yet, but unless it's real estate, if it's real estate, you could do that. And there is an example, by the way, in um, the north, what is it, the, uh, I think, is it the Northeast Redevelopment Fund in Minneapolis, or some, some name like that, but it's, it's a small um, land, land, you know, development of a block of a, of a city uh, that people are investing in. Hmm. So East is, okay. Well, what about, um, I saw a thing you told me about called change.org. Um, and I know they're doing a lot of creative things too, but my question about something like that is, that's not local money though, right? That's anybody can do that, that wants to invest locally. Is that how it works? Something like that? So, so yeah, so here's the thing. Um, there, there's, in crowdfunding comes in many flavors and the big thing that I've been talking about, you know, the, the change in federal law around investment crowdfunding uh, that, you know, where basically the, the practice got legalized in 2016. Um, the, all of the transactions for investment crowdfunding have to take place on a federally licensed portal. So it's an online, uh, an online website that you know the people who run it have gone through a whole battery of of qualifications with the SEC and and another organization called Finra, um, and so there's about eighty of these sites out there now, and one of the sites indeed is Small Change, which focuses on real estate projects. Um, it is true that any transaction that they put online, uh, any investor across the country can put money into it. They can't geographically exclude and say, well, well this is only for Michiganders or this is only for people in Grand Rapids um, because this, you know, the, the whole, the nature of investment crowdfunding is this is a national law. We're setting national rules and you have to accept money from anyone, you know, who meets the, say, the income criteria and so forth. That said, the way that investment crowdfunding actually works is that a company that, that is selling something will bring a list to the table and they do most of the marketing. So I would say for any given successful investment crowdfunding offering, anything from 50 to 75% of the investment has been brought by the company itself. So they, you know, so that that's why, you know, a typical Michigan company that does investment crowdfunding or a typical Michigan real estate project that does investment crowdfunding, uh, they're going to get mostly Michigan investors. Well, now these, these are going to be uh, like big time investors. They're not going to be grassroots necessarily, are they? 
it varies. Um, so the uh, what we know is that the average investment. So I, earlier I said it was like one point three billion dollars that have been invested. The average investment per investor is uh, somewhere I don't know around nine hundred dollars. So not so it's it's you know it's it is um, it's not just wealthy people. I mean there are when you look. Just, and and I, I haven't seen good statistics on this, but, you know, yeah, in most crowdfunding offerings, there's a two or three people who, you know, will invest five, ten thousand dollars in there and, and they're allowed to invest that much. But the average person is only allowed to invest twenty two hundred dollars. Um, so that really and that was set in place to prevent people from losing their life savings on a company they maybe don't understand. Um, and so, so that's, that's why, you know, the average investor is, is more like a thousand dollars. Okay. I, okay. I was wondering about that. Cause I, like I said, it, it's, the, 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 the secret seems to be reaching the grassroots. If it's going to be grassroots, you gotta be able to reach them. And, uh, not like the conversation we're having right now, people that will be watching this will be like, okay, they're already interested in it already and to get some new information. But uh, I got, like, I have a nephew. Um, his dad just called me a couple weeks ago, said he wanted to buy some houses in this town. So people want to buy them. People want to get these houses, you know. Um, they want to invest the community, get businesses going, but they have no idea about this. Uh, right. And so instead of buying a house, so they knew that instead of buying a house to flip it, if they could take that, let's say $30,000, put it in this fund, this local fund, or maybe not even that much, they wouldn't have to buy the whole house. They could have, they could put like, like you said, $1,000 and get 30 people to put $1,000 in, get these houses, build these things small like that. Cause they're not, they're not looking at, a lot of people are looking at, you know, developing a whole arena. They're looking at, let me get a house here, a house there and a house here. You know, your friend, your friend could set up a little LLC, um, maybe has 20 members. Each member puts a couple thousand dollars in and then they start buying properties. And as a group, they're buying them and flipping them, but with a certain set of social goals in mind, with the idea of, you know, making sure that you're not gentrifying, not, you know, uh, removing community character while you're doing it. I, th I think there's there's something to that. Um, but could that play into a local stock? Like you said, can, you, can they transfer that into a, uh, how do they parlay that into a, being a part of a local stock market or a local stock exchange or can't you? Well, if they start, you know, they maybe they start as a small company, the company grows. Uh, at some point, uh, they could sell shares in their real estate company to the public. And that's now, again, we don't have any local stock markets yet, but if we do have them, you know, well, you, you know, you, this real the, let's say this real estate company might sell initial shares in through crowdfunding. And then over time, when there is local stock markets, then people can, who own those shares of the real estate company could trade it. Um, so I, I hope we do get to that point soon. But you know, I, I wanna I want to kind of shift and talk.
talk about personal finance because I think personally, so I'm going to tell you my own story and we haven't talked about this uh, in our email. So uh, I'm a very, you know, as, as you know, I, I've enjoyed a lot of privilege growing up. I went to great colleges. I became a lawyer. Um, even though I do public interest, you know, I've been pretty well employed, uh, got married at 40 to a nice woman who is a, a law professor. And the marriage lasted about 12 years. Um, I then divorced or found myself divorcing in uh, the year 2008. And if that rings a bell, that was the year of the financial crisis. Yeah. So I went through divorce, uh, loss of a job, loss of, you know, loss of the connection to my house um, and a lot of other stuff in the same year. So uh, it was really a hard time for me. Um, there was, uh, so when I had my settlement with my wife, uh, my then wife, we had an agreement that, uh, we would split her pension fund 50, 50. And I decided what I wanted to do with, with that split. And because it was under court order, I could do this. I could take that money and, um, get rid of all of my debts and become debt free. What I didn't realize until about a year and a half later, because no one told me, none of the attorneys told me, is that this threw me into a really high tax bracket. And suddenly I had to pay massive amounts of taxes on that money that I received uh, from the divorce settlement. And I was suddenly more in debt than I was before. Um, and cause I, cause I had to use credit cards to cover all of that. I mean, it was tens of thousands of dollars of debt that I had again. So if I had to do that all over again, here's what I learned. Uh, I have learned, and, and this is part of the subject of my most recent book, put your money where your life is. I should have created a solo 401k, because I'm mostly self-employed, uh, and I could do that. And I should have taken the money that she transferred to me and put it into the solo 401k. I would have owed no taxes on it. Um, and I could have, with the solo 401k, given myself a $50,000 loan. And I could, money? Yes. Uh, okay. I could have loaned myself. My, I, my solo 401k could have loaned me 50,000, I could have paid off all the credit cards and then paid myself back at three or 4%. So I made probably a $100,000 mistake there. And it took me years to get out of debt. So that's, so there's, you know, a lesson I learned about the importance of a solo 401k. But now I'm going to tell you a happier story. And the happier story is, that one of the ways that I got out of debt is I went to friends that I live near and I said, how's this? I now have these massive credit card bills. I'm paying, the, I'm paying this, these credit card companies 20 to 30% interest a year. Um, how's this? Give me the money, give me $5,000 
uh, I will pay you back with a guaranteed 5% interest rate. Um, and so I was able to reduce my, you know, by basically crowdfunding locally my own debt, I was able to reduce my, my bill, my, my interest bill by about $100,000. So um, I think these two stories are kind, maybe more relevant to how, you know, people who are listening to this can think about their finances differently. Yeah, but in, in see, now let me ask you this. Um, how are you able to come across that information? Uh, like the idea of the crowdfund, how, how did you come across that? Was it something from your past or did you take a class or? Because I was well, have, yeah. Yeah, so, so here's the thing. Um, how did I come across the information? Some of it was because I, you know, was writing books and articles about local investment. So I was interested in this and I, you know, and I, so I've done a lot of advocacy around legal reform. So it's one good thing that my law education helped with is understanding the securities universe and uh, being able to advocate, you know, for some changes in the law. Um, but I, I wrote about this stuff for years and years and never realized, you know what, I should be doing this too. I mean, I was writing about this in terms of other people putting money into other businesses, and I never realized that it was really relevant for my own personal finance. And that was like a big light bulb that went off and said, I, I can get, you know, I can get myself out of this horrible financial situation if I get a little bit creative about crowdfunding from people that I know. Yeah, I did. That was a classic move. I like that one. I'll give you that. It was, you know, and and I'll tell you, you know, um, one woman I approached, the first person I approached, and, I, and honestly, this is a terrifying thing to do because to talk about your own personal finances and your own personal mistakes, as you know, and, and you do this all the time as you reflect on your past. Um, but I, for me, this was this was about the scariest thing that I have ever done. And you call up someone and, and say, you know, can we have a difficult conversation? And so this is a woman who, you know, was relatively well off and, you know, she had supported my work previously with grants, but I, I said I wanted to have a different conversation with her. So we spent about two hours on the phone talking this through. And at the end of it, she just stunned me. Not only did she agree to, you know, to um, help me out, but she thanked me for doing it because she said, this is, the, this is a new paradigm, right? This is the way we have to start thinking about investment differently because we can't just invest in businesses and things that are far away. We have to invest in people. And so I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that, about how else I can invest in uh, creatively in people around me that I love. And I'll give you a, an example that came up. Um, so I got remarried a year and a half ago. Um, and just before I got remarried, the pandemic hit. Um, so my soon to be new wife and I decided we wanted to support our 
favorite local business. And it's a business called Busboys and Poets. It's a restaurant and uh, eatery and bar and bookstore and art, you know, gathering place. And, uh, and it's run by this wonderful guy named Andy Shalal, uh, very successful entrepreneur in Washington. Um, uh, and I wrote Andy a thousand dollar check and I said, Andy, um, I know this is this pandemic is hell for you and I want you to hold on to as many employees as you can. So I'm going to give you this and just give me a thousand dollars in gift cards and, you know, I'll, I'll use it over time, but, but it gives you the money now. And he was so pleased. He gave me $1,200 of gift cards. So I got a 20% rate of return from investing in Andy you know, by just this pre-purchasing thing. And my wife and I were so excited about this. We basically said for our wedding, which was a Zoom wedding, we said no gifts, uh, but we're going to set up a little fund to support other local businesses in our community. So we raised $5,000 this way for other other businesses, other, other you know, farmers market entrepreneurs we, we love and we're able to pre-purchase stuff from them and help them during the pandemic. Man, see, you got to get that information to the average Joe. Stuff to, to be able to think like that because uh, a lot of places where I come from, it's going to be, you just got to hustle. You just got to, you know, get into the dope game or just flip houses and buy them super cheap. The thought of, hey, you know what? Maybe I could do something else. I could invest like you said, um, like with the gift card scenario, you know, another classic example, just doing something different. So those options aren't there for the people in the inner cities. And uh, like I said, that's gonna be a trick to see how to get them to think like you are thinking. Um, yeah, no, that's right. And so Andy, you know, Andy Shalal and Busboys and Poets has been, I mean, he does, he has put his restaurants not well, he has one restaurant in Anacostia, um, which, you know, is, is probably the lowest income zip code in D.C. Uh, but, you know, some of the others are more in, you know, transitional neighborhoods. So, but he has like a dozen of these uh, re- busboys and poets restaurants out there that, you know, I mean, they're one of the biggest employers of, you know, um, young people in, in D.C. I think he has a thousand people on his um uh, on his payroll at least before the pandemic hit so you know if we can just find the right entrepreneurs that are already kind of involved in the neighborhoods we want to focus on i think these these kind they they will know how to implement this stuff well well while you're talking i'm thinking about this is it possible for uh let's say andy as part of his paychecks, have uh, stock in the company. I know that sometimes you can you can do things like that. There are people that you know, uh, shit, baby. Who you work for, Herman Miller, right? Yeah. So Herman Miller, you you had stock there, right? Yeah. So so sometimes employees get stock somehow. I'm not sure how that works, um, but they get stock. Yeah, the they, these are employee stock ownership plans, ESOPs. Okay. So is it possible to? Like I said, I think that'd be excellent. So let's say you've got 10 Andes and they've got these stock option things, ESOP, you say? 
Yeah, uh, ESOP. Yep. So you got 10 Andes, 10 ESOPs. Is there any way, like I said, they may not even know each other, but is there any way that then now you only have to get over 10 people? You have 10 Andes come over and you say, hey, listen, we want to network these 10 companies together into a local and 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 can you start an exchange like that or some type of investment fund you get 10 annies instead of having you know you say here's a thousand employees you got 10 companies with a thousand employees you got ten thousand employees i'm i'm saying you know skip the employees they're not gonna give a shit or understand a lot of this stuff and they don't want to you, you have to go through meetings hey this is how esop whatever works um yeah i listen i think this is gonna happen um i think that um as as investment crowdfunding grows, we're going to see sort of more segmentation, more specialization of the portals that are facilitating this. And I I, I do think you know just like um, the uh, small change website focuses on cool real estate projects, I think there will be websites that focus on co-op investment and or focus on employee stock ownership plan investment uh, or companies, you know, with really high environmental performance in one way or another. And that's going to be a good thing. I mean, you know, so this, the use of these kinds of criteria is beginning to happen in the main street, in the main financial universe. It's just a lot of that is greenwashing. So we, we, what they call greenwashing. Oh, you know, oh okay. Oh, or, uh, you know, race washing, where they're, you know, they're just, they're just BSing people about what they're doing good in the world. Yeah. Um, so we need, I, one of the advantages of the local businesses is you can check out, you know, whether their claims are valid. Well, tell me, tell me this, because we, we did switch gears from it. Tell me this. Uh, and this is the crazy part is that I've talked to people before about investing and as an African-American, I've had people, you know, some, some other white guys tell me and, and, and they've told me, Hey, I want to invest in, I think black people should invest in black communities. And I'm, and me, I'm going with more of a spiritual tip as you know. So I'm like, Hey, let everybody do their thing. I'm coming from a God perspective, but what is it that, that there's a, there's a missing link. Like you said, you grew up with some privilege. Um, the Amway boys I was telling you about, they had a lot of money. They grew up with the privilege and there's a big disconnect, especially if you see a white guy coming in the neighborhood talking about, hey, I want to buy some stuff and help you guys or help you guys set something up. There's a big disconnect. It's automatically a, a block. Um, so two questions. One is what got you into that, into that point of view? And then two is how do you, as a white dude, get around that when you deal with have you, have you dealt with black companies or, or? Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, well, let's see. So I guess the answer to the first part of the question is, um, it's, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, F, I really did not like law school. Um, and so I decided right after law school to set up my own nonprofit because I, I had, I, I, I was reflecting on this with a friend yesterday. The friend asked me, why did you never go into corporate law? Um, you would have made, you know, 
a lot more money. And I, and I said, well, I, my first interview, my first year of law school was in Washington, D.C. with a firm called Kirkland and Ellis. They're still around, a Chicago-based firm. And I had four interviews that day in the firm. And so I'm, I'm still in the first year of law school, and this is, this is an interview for just a summer internship. Um, and the first person I talked to, his main, his main focus was defending cigarettes. Uh, his client was the American Tobacco Institute. The next person, his main interest was defending the American Petroleum Institute, fossil fuels. Yeah. The third person I talked to was representing big cereal companies and fighting regulation of ch advertising on children's television shows. Um, and then the fourth person I was talking to was defending the asbestos industry, uh, which was Whoa. by the end of that day, I, I, I thought, OK, I have two choices here. I can kill myself or I can really resolve that I'm going to do something different. I never went back to another corporate law interview. That was it. Now, this is one time that you gave the whole thing up. I, I was just, I was so repulsed. I, I thought, you know, if I work 10 minutes for these guys, let alone an entire summer, I could do some real bad in the world. So I, that was it. And then, and I guess, you know, once I got into the nonprofit universe, it, it was largely about working um with challenge communities in different ways and so that's continued over time and you know my clients now for economic development are native american reservations and the Hmong community in the twin the cities Hmong, uh, Hmong h-m-o-n-g so uh asian tribal people oh, okay. um and then, and then some African-American communities uh, around the country, too. And, and I think what got me involved with the African-American community in a big way um, is uh, a friend of mine um, named Bobby Austin set up something um, with the Kellogg Foundation money. And I, I guess it was in the year 1997. Uh, it was called the Village Foundation. And it was about working with African-American men and boys. Um, so uh, I had been, at that point, I was a director of a think tank in Washington. And I quit that job to work with Bobby um, and, and worked with him for several years. Um, we had a, you know, an entrepreneurship initiative. And so basically, I, you know, we were working exclusively in African-American communities, exclusively with African-American um, grassroots groups. And um, I was, I think, one of two white people in the organization. So, so that was, that was, you know, that was a real mind shift into focusing on the topic. And I've, you know, I've remained just really interested in how we improve things since. Um, and so I think, yeah, and I think keeping a racial lens, racial justice lens on the work we do is essential for everything. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm very pleased that my children are, are the same way. My, my son wants to go into medicine, but with a racial lens, 
my daughter wants to go into journalism with a racial lens. So, so this, this is, this is the, the moment. Right, right. Good. This is, yeah, this, that's, yeah, this, this generation now is into more, uh, yeah, like I said, with the racial lens and, and the, the green lens, I guess they're more into that stuff. Yeah. Um, now, now I did, I did, uh, I was talking with this guy on LinkedIn, uh, and he was saying, because he had saw some of my books, you know, I, the book I had, uh, Orgasms, American Slavery and God, that book right there. And he's like, why do you always talk about, why do you mention slavery a lot and things like that? And I said, he said, he said, a lot of black people do. And he goes, it's, it's over with. And I'm like, you, it's hard to explain to somebody that it's still there. Um, but when it comes to investing, do, do investors simply skip over? Do you think it's, it's, it's good for an investor to come in and say, hey, I've got money, uh, I can help you out? Or should that investor have to first, like a prerequisite, study, like I say? I probably actually before an email when I was spilling off at the mouth, whatever, uh, to study white flight or red lining or something like that first before they just give money and say, hey, you guys need money? I got you, here's some money, make it happen without understanding that there's it's a, it's a little more about yeah. yeah i think so i mean personally i i think um too many of us involved in sort of social justice work are too too interested in grants and not interested enough in creating viable businesses um yeah and i really i think that's kind of a dead end now i understand that there are some things that require grants um and 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 good good and let's do that but when it comes to like you know community development i think there's a lot we can do um in just you know the conventional market if we get people to to pay more attention to um, the most promising entrepreneurs in our community. Um, so I feel like, you know, what it's up to us to work on is, you know, helping identify who these most promising um, grassroots entrepreneurs are, um, maybe giving them help if they need it, and then organizing investors to introduce them to these folks. Um, that's that to me is is the big challenge ahead it's you know lifting lifting up the right businesses and lifting up investors with a heart to focus on them well when you see a local when you see a local um when you see a local stock market when do you when do you think the first one based on the temple we're at right now when do you think you'll see the first one in 10 years or more, or more like maybe about five years or yeah, you know, I think that's probably right. I, I had a nice conversation with a uh, young state legislator in South Dakota several weeks ago, um, and he was asking me the same question. Um, and I said, well, you folks in South Dakota could create a local stock market. Um, now, there it's complicated because really... What they would have to do, what I said to him is, you know, he could pass a piece of legislation in South Dakota sort of mandating a study 
of what a local stock, stock exchange in the state would look like. And then part of what that mandate might do is knock on the door of the SEC and say, will you give us permission to just do this in our state and, and you know, not and, and give us a waiver on the rest of the law? And I think if, you know, if a conservative state does that with the SEC, they're likely to get some some action. So that's probably the way it's going to play out. Is, is Michigan conservative? I don't know about these terms. Is Michigan conservative or not? Yeah, I, you know, I think Michigan would probably, I mean, well, it depends on, you know, which administration is running the SEC. But I think if Michigan creates a local stock market, yeah, people will pay attention. There's, you know, lots of Michigan power in the administration right now. Oh, yeah, we got the one. Oh, okay. The, the, the education lady. Well, there's Jennifer Granholm. Nope. And... education one, the one that, that works for the president. Oh, you, well, you're you're not talking about Betsy DeVos. Yes, that's Grand Rapids. Was, she was a Trumpista. Well, see, that's what we got in Grand Rapids. We've got the DeVos, she's from the DeVos family. DeVos yeah. and Van Adel, those two people, those two families run Grand Rapids in the Western Michigan. Yes, well, it's, it's, it's I can't believe you survive in that <laughs> environment. Kudos to you. <laughs> so listen we've hit the witching hour i have to pick up my daughter uh and say goodbye to her before she goes to, back to college tomorrow all right cool 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 yeah but, so you, uh, i'm glad you stopped me i've been going till eight o'clock so you I'm no no you well but we can do this again some point and i i think the um the the biggest the biggest thing i took away from the conversation is i've got to make sure this stuff is never boring so <laughs> I'm with it. All right, bet. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you, Mike. And uh, like I said, we'll do it again sometime. I'll let you know when, all right? Thank you. Appreciate all it. Right. Okay. Bye-bye.